Esther 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, Esther 8, 1, to Queen Esther. On that day. Now the day is that same day, NIV, that Haman was hanged on the gallows that he had created for Mordecai. It was on that day. On that day that he was hanged, uh, his house, the house of Haman, notice, was given to Queen Esther. So notice, it's the house, or we might say the estate of Haman. And remember, Haman is probably considered the prime minister of Persia. He's the second uh, most powerful man in Persia next to the king and Persia is the leading world empire of the day, so he's a very powerful man. He would be something akin to the vice president of the United States, uh, just to give you an idea of the power that he had. And now he has been hung on gallows that he had created for Mordecai. And remember I mentioned to you that there are some who believe that the Persians had some role in creating crucifixion or some form of it. And so what he may have created is something like a pole by which people would be impaled. And remember that he built the pole right outside his house, 75 feet high. And it's very fitting that now his house or his estate is given away. And it's given away really to his, what he would consider his mortal enemy, as you'll see in a moment. Notice that Haman is called the enemy of the Jews. His house, the house of Haman, uh, was given. The, the king gave it to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther, notice, had disclosed what he, Mordecai, was to her. Now, Haman's undoing is now almost complete. We'll see more in a moment. The evil man was gone, but the evil that he instituted, or he got going, was not completely dealt with. The decree of death still remained in place. And you will find that there's a mention in the book of Daniel at least three different times that the law of the Medes and the Persians are irrevocable. It is very strange that you have a world empire that would institute a decree or a law with the signet or signature of the king and they would make it irrevocable. So they could not, not even the king could revoke his own law. Talk about bureaucratic red tape. <laughs> they made it so hard on themselves that they made a mistake if they did something that was unwise or wasn't the right thing to do, it became irrevocable. And so what Haman has done has, has you know, the evil man has been dealt with, but the evil still continues. You might think about Adolf Hitler at this point who you know, did so much evil with the Holocaust, and there are still people today that laud him and want to continue his work, as sad as that is. So sometimes the man dies, but the ideas don't die with him. And in this case, an evil decree had gone out irrevocable, and uh, it was still in effect. And so the evil man is dead, but his evil still continues. I want to pause for a moment and tell you that some of you have had some evil in your past. Maybe it was an evil influence. Maybe it was an evil person who perpetrated some things against you. And even though maybe they're out of your life, you're still uh, dealing with the ripple effects of that evil. And that is just the reality of life. Unfortunately, for example, in cases of abuse, where somebody was abused, that person could be long gone from your life, but you're still reeling in some of the effects of that that was perpetrated upon you. And I'll just say to you that that's our world, unfortunately, and the thing that we need to rest in is in the grace of God, that God's grace is sufficient, even if we still have to deal with some of those things that have happened to us in the past and maybe even mistakes that we've made. So Haman's house being given to Esther and then to Mordecai is the irony of all ironies. You could call it the frosting on the cake of irony. Herodotus uh, notes that the property of a traitor to the Persian Empire was confiscated by the state of Persia, and the king could dispose of it as he willed or give it to who he wishes. And so not only is Haman hung on the gallows he created for Mordecai, but now his whole estate 
is given to his enemy. If it is possible to roll over in your grave, I would imagine that Haman went into high rotation at this point. Because this is really the irony of all ironies. And of course, you'll notice that even though technically Haman would be the enemy of Mordecai, it does identify him as the enemy of the Jews. And if you're the enemy of the Jews, then by virtue of that, you become the enemy of who? Of God. Because God made a covenant to Israel, and he said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In Genesis 15, he made an unconditional covenant to Abram. Abram was asleep when God passed through the animal parts as the smoking oven appeared, and he cut the covenant, not dependent on Abram, but dependent on the promises of God. And even though the Jews have been often rebellious, stiff-necked, unbelieving, God is true to his promises. And so when Haman became an enemy of the Jews, he became an enemy of God. And if you fight God, I just want to inform you, you are going to lose. Your arms are too short to box with God. There are people who try it probably every single day. Come on, come on, put them up, put them up. It's a wonder that more people are just not disintegrated on the spot. Yeah. Hannah, in her beautiful song to the Lord, says, God raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. Think of Haman. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them God will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. That's uh, from 1 Samuel 2, 8 through 10. That is Hannah's song. And so we are going to see some themes tonight of divine reversal, themes of joy and celebration and again, the providential work of God as he works in the lives of Esther, Mordecai, and of course, the Jewish people. Mordecai himself is going to celebrate divine reversal in this chapter, as we'll see in a moment. And both of them have become instruments of deliverance for the Jewish people. Esther, this unassuming young girl, you know, brought into the palace. And Mordecai, with those famous words, perhaps you've come into royalty for such a time as this. Could she have imagined that she would become the instrument or the vehicle by which God would save his people? And now it's at this point in the story that she actually comes clean. Look at 8.1. It says, the house of Haman was given to her, and Mordecai came before the king for Esther had disclosed what he was to her this whole time. Number one, the king doesn't know that she's Jewish. He's been living with a Jewish wife for quite some time, and she's been hiding it well. And number two, he now finds out that Mordecai is actually not only her older cousin, but her adoptive father. <laughs> kind of like this. Hey, hubby, meet your father-in-law. <laughs> what? Mordecai? Yes. He adopted me some years ago. My parents died. We're both Jewish. The decree of Haman was going to kill us. And this is all that comes out in the wash. And she finally gives full disclosure. She finally comes out of the closet. She finally comes clean. Have you? You know, sometimes what we do is we hide our faith. Or we hide who we belong to. Or we hesitate. And have you ever noticed, have you ever hesitated with a group of people or a person and then come to find out that they were actually hungry to hear what you believe? Or maybe they were interested in the things of God. Or maybe you and finally decided, I'll invite them to church. And they said, okay. And you're like, what? <laughs> I, I, I thought you were going to argue with me or say, no way. Or get lost, Jesus freak. But instead, maybe you found a hunger. And so she might have said, hey, Mordecai is really my dad. And the king took off his signet ring, verse 2, which he had taken away from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. Now, 
It would have been interesting if this would have happened while Haman was being carried away, you know, and the ring was taken off of him and given to Mordecai. Can you imagine how mad he would have been? No! Not only is he taken to the island of perpetual tickling, I had to mention it because I'm being told by keen observers that I bring up VeggieTales every week, so I didn't want to miss a week. So there it is. But anyway, the ring, the, the ring of power, if you will, the ring that gave him vested authority, now taken and given to the man that he could not stand. And in many ways, Haman created it himself. Had he just cooled his jets and said, okay, this one guy won't bow to me, but look at everything else I have, he would have been fine. But we tend to focus on that one thing that we don't have. And it became his destruction. For so many, this is what happens to many Americans. And so he gave it to Mordecai. You could say Mordecai is now the new prime minister. And, he, and Esther, the queen, set Mordecai over the house or the estate of Haman. Mordecai now took Haman's house, his job, his ring, and his car. I added car. There's no cars in the Persian Empire, but maybe it was a chariot. Maybe it was a Maserati chariot. I don't know. And, you know, it's amazing. The divine turnaround that is here, there's layers of it, and I'm sure you can see it. Everything that this man had, he now gave to a man, all because of his pride. Pride does go before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If Haman could have looked into the future, maybe looked a couple of days or a couple of months or a couple of years into his future and seen what his pride would have done to him, I'm sure he would have checked himself. I'm sure he would have stopped. I'm sure if he was shown the future, he would have said, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But somehow we believe that certain Bible verses don't apply to us. And that's where we go wrong. And so now, everything that Haman had has been given to Mordecai. Everything. Sometimes in all the darkness and desperation of a situation, if we're Esther and Mordecai, it's very difficult sometimes to imagine a happy ending. Can you imagine if you're Esther and Mordecai at this point and you just begin to pause and think of what God has done Remember, God's not mentioned one time in the book, but are his fingerprints everywhere? Imagine pausing just for a moment as Mordecai and going, wow, I'm now the second most powerful man in Persia. And it wasn't that long ago that I was telling my little cousin that I adopted into my family, please be strong. It wasn't that long ago that I was dressed in sackcloth and ashes and fasting and weeping and crying before the Lord. And now, look what God has done. The enemy was gone. They had so much to celebrate, but the job wasn't done because his evil edict was still in effect. If you want to see uh, cross-references to irrevocable law of the Medes and the Persians, write down Daniel 6.8, Daniel 6.12, and 15. An irrevocable law of the Medes and Persians. In many ways, the decree of death moves from the book of Esther to all of mankind. All of mankind is under the decree of death. The Bible says it's, it's destined for a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. It says the wages of sin is what? Death. We all die. De death is no respecter of persons. There's a decree of death that is spread to all mankind because we are the seed of uh, Adam, if you will, and death has spread, Romans 5.12. Because of that first sin, there's a death sentence on all of us. There's a decree. It's, in many ways, irrevocable. Something has to happen to deal with it. And uh, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection cancels out the decree of ordinances and so forth that was written against us, and he nails that to the cross. One writer that I read this week has suggested that had Esther come clean earlier, Perhaps Mordecai would have been elevated earlier. Uh, she hid her Jewishness for some five years. 
And I think that's simply conjecture because we have to remember that God is providential over the story. But do you think that it's possible that we could save ourselves some pain and some extra cleanup if we would come clean earlier on some things? It's very hard to come clean, isn't it? It's very hard to admit that you were wrong or that something has to change. So Esther spoke again, verse 3, to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite. Again, we're reminded of the ancient battle between the Amalekites and the Jews, which we talked about in the opening of this book, and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. Now, they could be happy, and Mordecai and Esther could say, okay, cool, things are worked out for us, great, but it's not good enough that they have, you know, had this lifted and Haman has now been dealt with. They are concerned about the people, and so should we be too. It should not be enough for us that we are now okay, that the decree of death has been lifted from us. It should be that we are now trying to tell other people where to find life. Amen? We are witnesses of life. We are ambassadors of hope, as though God were pleading through us for people to be reconciled to God. Look for opportunities every day to see how you might share that message of life and hope. Notice the position of Esther. She is, she's been cool through the whole thing with the two banquets and the dinners, but now she simply falls at the feet of the king. She's weeping. She's begging to have this evil removed, to have the plot lifted from the Jewish people. And the king, a sign of grace as we've studied in the past, extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. She had come with a burden. I want to show you, uh, hold your place in Esther. Turn to Romans chapter 9 for a moment. Romans chapter 9. When I saw Esther's um, appeal here, I couldn't help but think of a verse that grabbed me Romans 9, uh, very early as a Christian. And here's what the Apostle Paul says, and he's, he's saying it about the Jewish people. <clears throat> Romans 9, 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. Romans 9, 1, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish, Romans 9, 3, that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers or the patriarchs, and from whom is the Christ. And remember, this book is about uh, saving a people from whom the Messiah would come. So we have a stake in the book. Whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Essentially, Paul says, if it were possible, I would give up my own salvation that my people would be saved. Would you like just an inkling, a little bit of that kind of passion for the lost? I, I would encourage you tonight to be praying that God would give you a heart like Paul for the people of your city, the people of your family, the people of your company. I would, I would challenge you and I challenge myself to ask God to renew in you a passion for the lost. It's part of what makes the Christian life exciting. Go to Romans 10, look at verse 1. Romans 10, verse 1, as Paul continues this, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire, Romans 10, 1, and my prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? To everyone who believes or trusts in the Lord Jesus. Back to the book of Esther. And so the picture of the scepter going forth, back to Esther 8, is a picture of the grace of God. A prayer that the Lord wants to answer is a prayer for the lost, a prayer for opportunities to evangelize. He will give grace, and we can approach him boldly, coming to the throne of grace to find uh, help in time of need. I'll tell you this. 
uh, I've probably over my years as a Christian prayed amiss about a number of things. But one prayer I never know I can go wrong with is to ask God to help me to clearly and boldly proclaim his gospel so that people can be saved. I think you can pretty much have a guarantee that God will answer that prayer. Help me to fearlessly proclaim the truth as I ought is what Paul prays for in Ephesians 6. He asked for prayer in regard to that. And so Esther is respectful, formal. She says, verse 5, if it pleases the king, if I found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. She says, would you reverse these letters of death, and would you write letters of life? At one point, we had the sentence of death hanging over us. Now, in Christ, we are alive because he who has the son has the life amen he who does not have the son of god does not have the life she says how can i endure think of paul in romans 9 how can i bear to see the calamity which shall befall my people that is the jews and how can i endure or bear to see the destruction of my kindred in essence if you love me if you say that you grant your favor to me, if indeed you are on my side, then please, I will be miserable if I'm okay and Mordecai's okay, but my people are still going to perish. I can't live with that. I can't bear to see that. And that is what drives evangelism, my friends, brothers and sisters. There's one word that drives evangelism, and the word is love. Compassion. It's to try to get the message of hope and it's not easy, but trying to get the message of hope to unbelievers. She said, how could I bear this? How could I endure this? How could I go on if this happens to my people? I would be wrecked. Moses said to God in Exodus thirty-two twenty-nine. now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. It seems that the closer that people get to God, the more they have a passion to see others know him. Because to know him is to know that which the psalmist says is better than life itself. It's to know your creator. And so King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther 7 and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. I think the king is trying to take the easy way out here. I think he's saying, look, I've done everything I can. Haven't you noticed? Haman's over there hanging on the gallows. He may still be there. And I gave you his estate, and you've given it to Mordecai. What more do you want from me, woman? Did Haman hang because of his evil edict against the Jews? Well, technically, he did not. The king found an excuse to deal with Haman when he walked into the room and Haman was falling down next to uh, the queen on the couch. And what did he do? He basically accused him of rape and got himself off the hook because he was responsible for the edict. He had given the signet to it. He should have read it before he signed it or before it, it had been signed. Have you ever had one of those things where you're signing about you know, 300 documents to buy something. You're like, I don't care what it says anymore. <laughs> I don't care if I just sign my grandchildren away. Get me out of here. Been there, done that. Only by the grace of God go I. I support you, honey, but what more can I do? You've got all the stuff. And so he says this. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit. This king is always trying to delegate. <laughs> in the king's name, now you can use my name just as Haman did, and seal it with the king's signet ring. I gave it to Mordecai. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Remember that law of the Medes and Persians? Irrevocable. Now what do we got going on here? We got an irrevocable law that needs to be dealt with by another irrevocable law, both signed with the signet, king, uh, uh, signet ring of the king. And how does this work? 
uh, two laws that contradict each other, now going down the pipeline, may the best edict win? I don't know. How does this work? Well, the king, and this is part of the satire of the book, the king is powerless to undo a law that was created in his name. And there is such a thing as bureaucratic red tape. And it sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? It seems that our own government struggles to get anything done. Because it seems to me that it's more about politics and popularity than it is about getting stuff done. And that's the sad reality. Now you write, as you see fit, I'll give you the authority. I'm not even going to proofread this one as well. You would think this guy would proofread documents now that go out in his name. But you go ahead, write it in my name, and uh, the law can't be revoked. And so immediately the scribes go to work. The king's scribes were called, verse 9. At that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, that's our uh, May-June, it's the... Uh, in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. So, just a side note, verse 9 of Esther 8 is the longest verse in the Bible. So, notice it says, the 23rd day, it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded, so he's the author, Haman was the author of the first one, to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. So, just a side note for those of you interested, 70 days have passed from Haman's decree, his initial decree, till now. 70 days. Mordecai gets to counter the evil plan. He cannot undo it, so he has to try to find a way to nullify it. And that's what God did for us in the gospel. Death is something that we all have to deal with, but Jesus undoes it by his own death and resurrection, right? He defeats death by dying on the cross for us. He sheds his blood to counter the law of sin and death. And so now the edict is being written, it's being put together, and there is great haste to get it out. Uh, this counter law. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Verse 10, sent letters by couriers on horses, riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble, to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. In one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. Now this day, that all of this is supposed to happen, is still eight months away. So the actual day of death is in the future. Nobody knows the day of their own death, right? Um, you know, if, if we knew it, it would freak us out probably, but it might give us a little bit more urgency about how we live as well. Because sometimes we have this mindset that we're going to live forever. So we have plenty of time to get stuff done and tell people how we feel and, you know, deal with stuff. But the truth is we don't. And so if you have an NIV, let me read a text note. The NIV obscures the Lex Taliano, so I'll explain in a moment nature of this section by making their women and children in 811 refer to the Jews who are under attack, not the families of their aggressors. Uh, so what's the deal? Why is this this way? And I'll just save you some reading. There's a lot of consternation about this edict among scholars and commentators. And some taters are more common than others. So just so you know, that was from... Never mind, I guess you didn't think it was funny, but anyway. <laughs> Potatoes, never mind. <laughs> and here's why, because the mention of women and children, this difficulty of some sort of script authored by Mordecai 
to do such a thing as the middle of verse 11 says. But remember that what is written here is directly to counter the edict of Haman. Turn over to 3.13. Take a look. Chapter 3, verse 13. Here's what it says. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old. That's one thing that's left out of Mordecai's version. Women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to seize their possessions as plunder. Essentially, Mordecai takes the exact language of Haman's evil decree and swings it around to write a decree to offset it by giving the Jews the right to do the same as would be done to them. This is the idea of lex talionis. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? Here's what I mean. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, kind of uh, payback. You could call it divine retribution. You could call it the law of the Torah, the Old Testament. In fact, if you're interested, look this up later. Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25, talk about this. And it even says, burn for burn, tooth for tooth. You knock somebody's tooth out, it's going, baby. This was the law. Now, Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5, 38. And you can take a look at that in your own leisure time. But here's the struggle. The struggle is, is an edict going forth that the Jews have the right to destroy and plunder these people? Well, think about it. The only people they're supposed to be able to do this to is people who what? Attack them. So they're in a defensive posture to begin with. And whenever someone's coming after you, you have to decide what you're going to do, right? And here there's the idea of a payback in uh, the same measure you want to give it out it comes back to you. Who's a living example in the book that this has already happened to? Haman. It's already happened to Haman. And we all would say divine providence has orchestrated it. In fact, some of you last Wednesday were thinking, good tonight, Haman hangs tonight. Haman. Now, how many of you have to admit that the bad guy at the end of the movie, when he falls off the building, or somebody gives him his just desserts, you're like, good, good for you. Fall and splat on the ground while you're at it. <laughs> Wait a minute, are you a Christian? That's not a very Christian thing to think. But do you know that divine retribution is something that's coming to our planet? Do you know that Jesus Christ is going to come on a horse with a sword and he is going to deal with the rebellious, unbelieving world and that's yet future? He's coming again and he's going to deal with his enemies and the Bible does say that even his garments are going to be spattered with their blood. You know, I know in the West, in a modern culture like ours, it may not be the easiest thing to understand or take. But God is a God of justice. And his justice was satisfied against you and me at the cross, but at no low cost. Jesus Christ takes the wrath of God at Calvary so you don't have to. God is holy and just. And measure for measure retaliation now, there's no mention in the next chapter, we get detail, there's no mention of children or women being killed. There's no mention of plundering their possessions. In fact, just the opposite. They don't take their possessions. But there is a verse in there where it gives a cumulative number of 75,000 people that die, and we don't know of that number who they were. But the 75,000 people who die, this is chapter 9, verse 16, are people who hate the Jews. They're coming after them. They've taken this edict as a right to kill them. When our forces went to deal with Nazi Germany, for example, and we got involved in the war, why did we do that? We did that to stem the tide of evil. And there is just war theory that's been written about in Christianity. Such a thing as a just war. There is a time when a nation has to stand up against evil. Amen? 
There's a time when a group of Christians need to stand up against ridiculous abortion laws coming out of New York and other states. It's just tragic and ridiculous. And there's no other way to say it. Now, are people lost and ignorant and maybe don't understand the full issue? Of course. Do we preach a message of grace and hope and love for sinners just like us? Of course. But we do not stay silent in the face of evil. Jesus didn't, nor should we. But Jesus shows us what God's grace is all about when he takes the wrath upon himself. And this is where we need great wisdom. We need to understand that our God is holy and he's a God of justice, but he dealt with our sin at the cross. Would you turn to Romans one more time? Let me show you one more. Romans 5. And this is a, another glorious section, but I want to just read a little further than maybe sometimes we read. This is Romans 5. Look at verse 8. It says, But God, Romans 5, 8, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Much more than Romans 5, 9, having now been justified, declared innocent or righteous before God by his blood, we shall be saved from what? From the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You see, we have been justified by his blood, verse 9, and saved from the wrath of God. This is what we preach. We preach a message of hope for people who have done unspeakable things. We say there's forgiveness for Saul of Tarsus who became Paul, David who murdered a man in the Old Testament, Moses killed somebody. I mean, look, some of our great heroes have risen from the ash heap of their own sin, and I would imagine you have too, I have. I'm, I'm glad that God is a God of grace and forgiveness. And so... Haman is a good way to think about the way that this works. Haman's estate, his life, everything, it's happened to him just as he planned it to somebody else. Back to Esther 8. And so a copy of the edict uh, to be issued a, as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews should be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So notice uh, Esther 8.13 does uh, affirm that it's a defensive posture. The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command, some news is just too important to wait, even though they had eight months, went out riding on the royal steeds. You can see the authority, the power. You can picture a, a movie scene where the horses are galloping and the dust is flying up as they take off with the, the decrees to reverse this or to nullify it. And the decree was given out in Susa, the capital, the very place where the king had his headquarters. And so out they go, the royal steeds kicking up dirt, burning rubber, if you will, to go out with the king's command. And they spread the word. And then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa when Mordecai came out after he had gone through his great makeover, because remember, it wasn't that long ago that he had sackcloth and ashes on. He was weeping and wailing in the middle of the city of Susa, and all the Jews began to weep and wail. He tore his clothes. Now he's dressed to the nines. He's dressed like royalty. He's dressed for success. And out he walks, probably chest a little bit out, flowing gowns. He, in many ways, is, a, one writer has it as the, reflecting the art of the empire, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, clothed with the richness that paralleled the decorations at the king's great feast in chapter 1, especially verse 6. You could hear the music as he walks out, man. Yeah, maybe, how many of you remember Cool in the Gang? Remember Cool in the Gang? Celebrate good times. Come on. Yeah. Woo -hoo -hoo. <laughs> right? 
It's a celebration. I think Morty was coming on a little bit like, yeah. Hey, do you know it's okay to celebrate as a Christian? In fact, you and I should be celebrating every day. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. You know where Paul wrote that from? Prison. What? Yeah, Paul was in prison. <laughs> do you remember when they were uh, imprisoned in um, the Philippian jail and they began singing hymns at midnight and the Lord shook open the prison gates? Do you know that joy is the second fruit of the Spirit? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Do you know that joy... Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse said that joy is love singing. Can I, can I ask you a question? Well, that was cool. Everybody said, do that again. Oh. I've shared that at many weddings and I've never got that before. I waited for it. Nothing. It's a mixed multitude at weddings. <laughs> anyway. Can I ask you? How are you doing with joy? You know, sometimes I have to ask the Lord to make me joyful. I have so much to be joyous about, but sometimes, anybody else battle with this? Maybe a little negativity, maybe a little, oh, I gotta get, I gotta get this done today. I, my car, I gotta wash my car. The other car hasn't been washed. I'm gonna take this one and I gotta wash. I gotta put gas in it. Because the last person that drove this had put gas in it. And then you go, wait a minute. I have a car. I have a second car. I have money to put gas in my car. And I'm whining about, I gotta put gas in it. We have issues, people. <laughs> That's a, a nice way to say we're a bunch of sinners. But issues sounds nicer. Can you be in the 5th century city of Susa and rejoicing that Mordecai came out dressed nicely, opposite of what it was before, even though you still got problems and you're still technically a, a person who's in a foreign country, not in your homeland, and probably not in the best of situations. You might even be a slave to the Persian Empire. And yet, the city of Susa, they shouted and rejoiced they went from fasting to feasting. For the Jews, there was light. Light is a way to say happiness or hope. And gladness and joy and honor. When Mordecai came out in the royal robes, they were like, oh yeah, it's a new day in the kingdom. Because another decree of life has gone out. Haman's dead. Ding dong, Haman is dead. The wicked old Haman. Thank you, Michelle. I'm glad you're here. That shows up on the recordings and people actually think I'm funny. So thank you for that. I'll pay you later. Anyway, in chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai had gone out into the city with torn clothes, sackcloth, and ashes, with wailing and bitterness. And now, look at the language. It's beautiful. There's light, 16, gladness, joy, and honor. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Take a peek with me. This is a direct opposite of what was going on when the edict of death had gone out from Haman. In each and every province, 4, 3, where the command and decree of the king came, there was mourning, great mourning among the Jews. There was fasting, weeping, wailing. Many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Now flip right over to 8 and look at back at 16. Instead now, there is shouting, end of 15, rejoicing. There's light or hope or happiness, gladness, joy, and honor. This is a divine reversal. This is the Lord giving us uh, praise, a garland of praise instead of, instead of ashes. Jesus has come to bring hope, to preach good news, 
to the downtrodden. To open the prison doors to those who dwelt in darkness. They have seen a great light. When the angel proclaimed in Luke chapter 2 the coming of the Messiah, he said, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Amen? Amen. See, Jesus Christ was coming from the Jewish people. Maybe this is a foretaste of the coming kingdom where there's going to be light and hope. And it's going to be really uh, that core of us. And in each and every province, final verse, and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment, 817, and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews. A feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the... For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. You want to talk about a divine reversal? The last thing you wanted to be was a Jew in the Persian Empire. This edict had been around for a couple of months. There's no way that you wanted to, you didn't do that ancestry test, nothing. <laughs> right? I don't find out if I have a little bit of Jewishness in me because I'm going to visit the Holy Land. Nobody did that. If you had a tinge of that, you tried to distance yourself from it because there was a decree of death on you. Now... God has so turned things around that people want to convert to Judaism. That is God. And when people see the light and the hope that is in our lives, that's part of the reason they want to convert to Christ. They want to be part of the people of God because they see in us the hope of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. In each and every city where there are Christians, where the church is, builds a little building, whether it's a hut or a big building, whether there's a small congregation or a big one, the light of the gospel goes out and people find hope because Jesus Christ is our hope. Amen? This is the message that we proclaim to a lost and dying world. And knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men because we want people to join the community of life to find hope and light in Jesus. I'm going to take you to a final section. It's in 2 Timothy 4. You all know that um, from the book of Esther comes the holiday called Purim. We're seeing it, uh, 2 Timothy 4. Uh, we'll get more about it as we close the book, 2 Timothy chapter 4. But the Feast of Purim comes out of the book of Esther. Do you know something? So get this. So I, I was praying about the next book to teach on a Wednesday night. And uh, as I sought the Lord, you know, it's never a perfect science, but I just had this sense that we should go to Esther. And so um, there's certain books that, you know, I've taught a lot of the books of the Bible, but uh, Esther I taught once many years ago, and I wanted to teach it again. So I, I teach the book of Esther, and I'm sitting with a young lady, and we're t we're, she noticed that there was a commentary on the book of Esther, and she goes, oh, you know, the Feast of Purim's coming up. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, March. Yeah, the Feast of Purim's coming up in March. And so, so get this. So I begin to look at my calendar, and I begin to see, okay, when's the Feast of Purim going to happen, and how many messages do we have until the feast? So do you know, now this is not perfect, but usually I take a Wednesday night off and we have a guest speaker speak. So if that happens, the last study we'll do in the book of Esther will fall on the Feast of Purim. The very night it falls on a Wednesday night. And I'm not that smart. <laughs> nor can I count that good. And I started going, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a loose way of saying, wow, God, you're big. All right. Second <laughs> Timothy 4, 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead at his, uh, by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Re reprove, rebuke, exhort 
with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Think of the book of Esther. Do the work of an evangelist. Finish. Fulfill your ministry. To the glory of God. Father, we thank you so much that we have this incredible little gem in the Bible called the book of Esther. And I can't help but think of the Hebrew name of Esther. Her name is Hadassah, the myrtle tree. And boy, how she bloomed in the book. She came, became more bold, more wise. Every step of boldness she, she took, it seems you made her a little bit more bold. And she bore abundant and abiding fruit that still lives today. And just as Haman's evil plot rippled out and had to be dealt with even though he was dead, though Esther has long died, and Mordecai too, her testimony lives. And I pray that you'll help us in our generation never to grow weary in doing good. For we will reap in due time. We will reap a harvest of reward but there will also be a harvest of fruit to follow we don't know what that all looks like but as we are faithful you do the rest lord and so i pray over this precious group tonight i know they're hungry for your word they've been walking through the book of esther and it's been a wonderful journey may you bless them may you keep them may you multiply fruit in their lives may your beautiful face shine on them and may you give them peace and if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're listening to my voice and you've not met him, you have a decree of death upon you, my friend. And the only way it can be revoked and nullified is through applying what Jesus did at the cross and through the resurrection. Would you trust him?